wife asked me last night, and some of you may have come in this morning wondering, are we going to veer off the beaten path this, this week uh, in light of what took place Tuesday uh, in the, uh, the annals of history for our country, what we will call it uh, years from now? Um, are you going to address that? Are we going to you know, step into a passage that speaks about Christian politics or biblical ethics or um, the, the walking in the balance of both grace and truth? Um, or uh, I would love it if you would speak about what it means to be slow to speak because I'm getting really frustrated every time I go on social media and this, that, and the other. And my answer to that question is no. Um, I'm not going to do that. And there are two reasons why. Um, number one, because I, I believe in God's kindness, we have been spending time as a church in a book of the Bible that should have been preparing our hearts all along the way. Regardless of where you fall on either side of the aisle, or if you're standing in the middle of the aisle going, I don't like either side of the aisle, no matter where you are, for the last two months, we've been spending time in a book of the Bible that unashamedly declares that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. That every human leader, past, present, and future, will be nothing more than a footnote except for Jesus Christ himself. Okay? So, we're going to go right back to Daniel this morning, chapter 11, which is going to declare the same thing. And my hope this morning is that that seeps just a little deeper down into your heart this morning. The second reason why I don't want to veer off of the path this morning and step away from the book of Daniel is because I'm not convinced that there is one thing that could be said that could cover everyone in this room like a blanket. Um, there are so many layers of complexity that come to bear that many of you have wrestled with in the last week. For some of you, there's a real struggle to understand the lack of compassion that people have for one another, including those in, in the church. For others of you, it's issues of, man, I, I don't understand how people are embracing this ethic versus that ethic in light of what the scriptures have to say. My guess would be that there are even some of you who come in this morning going, I'm not even sure if I voted in a way that was led by the Spirit. I'm, I'm still not sure if I did that right. Um, and so what I think would be more helpful, rather than just attempting to shoot buckshot to take a passage of the Bible and, and blanket everyone, because I think that would just generalize it enough that it might not speak to anyone, what I would rather do is to say this. For the next few weeks, I'm going to open up my calendar a little bit more than I usually do. And if you want to meet up for coffee or for breakfast, or for lunch to talk about anything that you're wrestling with in light of recent historical events. I would love to carve out that time to do that with you. Um, whether, whether it is a question of, what does the Bible have to say about politics? What does the Bible have to say about submitting to authority uh, in human form? What does the Bible have to say about this particular uh, ethical issue or, or that particular ethical issue that these various party platforms um, want to adhere to? What does the Bible say about walking in both grace and truth? Um, if you want to wrestle with whether or not you voted in a way that honors Jesus um, and talk through that, and, and I think there are a number of layers of complexity that get brought to a conversation like that, but I would be excited to have that conversation with you. Um, just before we moved uh, from Orlando back to Peachtree City, I taught a biblical ethics class uh, for 11th and 12th graders. Okay, there is there's no more provocative mind than the mind of an 11th or 12th grader. There are no greater questions that you could possibly get on planet Earth than those that come out of the mouths of 11th and 12th graders. And I taught this class uh, during a midterm election where the legalization of medical marijuana was on the bill. 
And we had an honest, uh, thought-provoking conversation about what the Bible has to say about medical ethics and about um, uh, biblical ethics as it pertains to the body as a temple and a number of other things that got layered into that. And so I, I share that with you to say that um, I find those conversations to be strangely enjoyable. And I think that that would be far more beneficial for the church than for me to just attempt to cover you with a blanket this morning in a way that I'm not sure would uh, do anything more than reduce it to less than what it is that uh, many of you are wrestling with this morning. And so with those two things being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 11, where yet again, we will hear God declare to his people that Jesus is seated on his throne and he has not lost control of the wheel, no matter where you find yourself this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. That Bible's yours. If you don't own a Bible or you have a, a translation that's difficult to understand, please take that with you for free. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I thought that the prophecy of the 70 weeks passage was the most difficult one in the book of Daniel. I was wrong. This is it right here. I mentioned to some of the other lead pastors in the Crosspoint family that if ever there are a reason that I had ever considered taking a sabbatical, it's Daniel chapter 11. So um, we're going to pray and uh, ask God to help me, and then we will get on with the show. Lord, again, thank you so much for this book of the Bible. I do pray that uh, for the last couple months that you have been preparing the hearts of your people, that the truth that every kingdom in this world other than yours is a footnote has been sinking in deeper and deeper uh, into the recesses of our being, and I pray that that would continue to happen this morning, uh, that we would uh, be a people uh, who find ourselves resolved um, in the midst of uncertainty, because we know that you are, in fact, seated on your throne. Uh, nothing surprises you. Uh, your plans cannot be thwarted, and you will usher in an eternal kingdom of peace, which will replace all of our anxiety one day. You will usher in an eternal kingdom of joy, which will replace all of our despair one day. You will usher in an eternal kingdom of righteousness, which will replace all of our sin and unrighteousness one day. And it is a kingdom that will never end. God, I pray that that truth, again, would sink deep into our hearts this morning as we unpack Daniel chapter 11 for your glory and our good. Father, would you do these things by the power of your spirit? It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Let me go ahead and give a disclaimer. We will get out of here at the same time we always do, okay? Some of you have already looked down at your Bibles and you're going, holy smokes, how is this going to happen? It's going to happen, trust me. Verse 1, let's get to work. And as for me, this is the angel from chapter 10 speaking. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Okay, the first year of Darius the Mede, this is the exact same year that the decree went out from Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Israelites be allowed to return to their home and rebuild the temple. The, the angel who's interpreting this last vision to Daniel, the, the one who has uh, been fighting fallen angels in the midst of the Persian empire, he tells us that he actually had a role in swaying the Persians to issue that decree in the first place which is really crazy when you think about it. That, that Again, there's a battle taking place that our eyes are not privy to, a battle between the forces of good and evil. And yet, Satan and his army, I said this last week, I'll say it again, they are on a leash. 
They are God's lackeys. They have no final jurisdiction over anything. If God wants his people to be returned to their land, God's people will be returned to their land. Again, chapter 10 is a a scene setting for the final vision. You get chapters 10, 11, and 12, the final episode collectively, and we're breaking those down into three Sundays. Last week, we looked at the intro to this final apocalyptic vision that Daniel receives from God. This morning, we get the contents of that vision itself, and and it's a vision so detailed with respect to uh, the events of human history, things that actually would go on to unfold, that critical scholars have argued that this book was actually written after the events of Daniel chapter 11 took place. They argue that there's, there's no way that uh, Daniel could have put pen to paper and articulated the number of things that we see in chapter 11 that actually came to fruition with such accuracy prior to the events themselves taking place. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe in a God who is capable of anything. I believe in a God who knows everything. I believe in a God who can easily declare what will happen ahead of time in order to flex, in order to put on display his perfect knowledge and sovereignty and power, in order to comfort his people uh, in light of what's to come. He He knows. He knows the ending of this real life fairy tale. He knows that the princess will be rescued in the end. He knows that the dragon will be slain. He knows that sadness will be wiped away forever. He knows that the most glorious happily ever after will be experienced by his people forever. God knows. He's not surprised. We serve a God who knows the entirety of this divine drama from start to finish. We get the opportunity again to see him flex in chapter 11, to see him put on display that perfect knowledge, that perfect sovereignty and power. Verse 2, the angel says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. There were three Persian kings that came after Cyrus, which set the stage for a fourth king, a man by the name of Xerxes. If that name sounds familiar to you, Xerxes was the Persian king in the book of Esther. He was also the Persian king in the movie 300. Um, He invaded Greece, but we know was ultimately defeated at the Battle of Salamis, which set the stage for a man by the name of Alexander the Great. We see him in verse 3. It says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Uh, we've seen this kind of description before in the book of Daniel, if you've been around For any part of this series, this king mighty in power whose kingdom would be divided into four smaller kingdoms upon uh, in the wake of his death. We know that none of those smaller kingdoms actually went to his sons or his posterity as verse 4 puts it. We know that his sons were assassinated. The man who built one of the most powerful empires in all of human history had no one to carry on his name. Another subtle reminder that every human kingdom has an expiration date. It's God's kingdom that will endure. I love the way Isaiah chapter 40, verses 22 and 23 put it, put it. It says this, It is he, it is God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants, that's you and me, are like grasshoppers. It's God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. 
It's God who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness in comparison to him. Again, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. He is the only sovereign. As you move into verses 5 through 20, the lens now zooms in on two of these four kingdoms in the wake of Alexander the Great's death. Um, You you get uh, this kingdom in the south in Egypt, uh, what's known in uh, history books as the Ptolemaic kingdom. And you get this kingdom to the north in Syria, what's known as the Seleucid dynasty. Um, If you think about the lay of the land, it it makes sense that these two dynasties would be highlighted in Daniel chapter 11. Syria is to the north of Judah. Egypt is to the south of Judah. So you have God's people right in the middle of a back and forth uh, turf war between the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Remember, the Bible is not purely a history book. It's a redemptive historical book. The lens always zooms in on God and his relationship with his people. We see that in the creation story as God gives us this cosmic level panoramic view of creation in Genesis chapter 1. The creation of sun, moon, and stars. The creation of land and water and sky. And then in Genesis chapter 2, the camera zooms in on God and his people in his perfect garden uh, utopia of Eden. You see the same thing in the final unfolding chapters of the Bible as well. Revelation 21 gives us this cosmic level panoramic view of the restoration of all things in the end. And then in Revelation chapter 22, the final chapter of the Bible, the camera zooms in on our beholding of God's face. The same thing happens in Daniel chapter 11. The lens zooms in on the struggle that God's people are going to experience post-exile. They're going to find themselves right in the middle of a turf war that they cannot seem to escape. We're going to read verses 5 through 20 in just a moment. I need you to breathe, take a sip of coffee, because we're not going to stop verse by verse and unpack this. We're going to read it from start to finish. I would, I would encourage you this week, if you don't own a study Bible, buy one. If you do own one, open it this week. And, and, and look at the details of uh, this chapter in the study notes, particularly verses 5 through 20. And notice the historical accuracy of what Daniel records in these verses that actually comes to pass in human history. It's really crazy. Um, As one commentator that I read this week um, noted, he said this, uh, these verses refer in a specific, historically identifiable way to 13 of the 16 rulers of these two kingdoms. That's crazy. Before it ever happened, 13 out of 16 rulers of these two dynasties, dynasties are declared with historical detail and accuracy in Daniel chapter 11. What that means is that to unpack these verses in detail would warrant us having to discuss in detail 13 different kings and the details of their various legacies and battles. I mean, take your pick of any 13 presidents in succession and imagine if uh, one chapter of the Bible talked about those 13 presidents and we had to unpack that one Sunday morning. Very difficult, right? And so I, I don't think the goal in terms of our takeaway this morning is hindered by us not doing that, by us not getting uh, deep, knee deep in the weeds, so to speak, in terms of the historical details. Again, that's the beauty of study Bibles. 
Because study Bibles exist, I'm okay with not turning this into a world history lecture on a collegiate level for us this morning. What I do want you to notice as we read verses 5 through 20 in their entirety is this constant back and forth battle that never seems to lead to ultimate victory or peace. And remember, God's people are caught up right in the middle of all of it. Beginning in verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Verse 7, and from a branch from her roots, one shall rise in and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. You see where this is going? It's just a constant back and forth. Verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Pause. It's a great time to take a breath anyway, right? Oh. All right, I'm going to keep talking. Verse 11. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again rise... Uh, raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Verse 18. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall, return, he shall turn uh, to insolent, his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Everybody got that? Again, go read a study Bible, please, because... I don't even want to attempt to try to unpack all of the historical details of what we just read. 
what I do want you to see is that we, we do have this seemingly endless battle taking place between the various kings of these two dynasties. In some sense, it gives you a picture of human history, does it not? One empire after another seeking to be the dominant empire that stands the test of time for the first time ever, conquering through, through power, bloodshed, and force. Yet, even the greatest of empires eventually falls. In the midst of, of this particular battle between these two dynasties, God's people don't get to sit on the bench and watch from the sidelines. Right? They're geographically, they're right in the middle of all of it. It would be like us being in the middle of a war being waged between Mexico and Canada. Okay, That, that gives you an idea. They're right in the center of all of it. They don't get to sit on the bench. A, a vicious, violent game of tug-of-war is taking place that they cannot get themselves away from. Going back to verse 16, it says, And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. This isn't the first time that Daniel uses that phrase, the glorious land. He uses that same phrase in chapter 8, verse 9, to mean the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land of God's people, the land that they would return to post-exile. And here in chapter 11, verse 16, we're told that the glorious land will experience destruction in the midst of this seemingly endless war between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Now you start to understand more and more why Daniel's posture is what it is in chapter 10. He's on his face, prostrate before the Lord, Fasting and mourning. The end of the exile was supposed to be the end of the suffering. And yet according to verse, or chapter 11, that's just not the case. In fact, as we get to verse 21, the next chunk of text that makes up this lengthy chapter of the Bible brings about this villainous figure that we've met before in chapter 8. A man who terrorized God's people for years. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember this guy? Declared himself to be God manifest. God in the flesh. A man who massacred tens of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. A man who set up an altar to Zeus in the very temple of God. A man who put an end to the sacrificial system altogether. A man who established a forced paganization program in an attempt to destroy Israel's faith. This guy gets a little bit more press in Daniel chapter 11 because he eventually becomes the king of the north. Listen to this description that you get of Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the most vicious people to have come along in the history of God's people Verses 21 through 35, and I'll point out a few things along the way that would have perked Daniel's ears as we read. Beginning in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time... The time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. 
Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Much of this section again, gives you historical background. You get the historical background of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, and his reign in human history. And you can explore much of that in a good study Bible. But for the sake of our time this morning, let me point out something that would have perked Daniel's ears in the midst of all of these historical details that he himself could not have made sense of because they had not yet come to pass. Look at verse 28. Again, he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. We, we know that Antiochus Epiphanes returned to his home in the north after plundering Egypt in 169 BC. And on his way home, he passed through Palestine, the glorious land, and saw an uprising taking place, which caused him to deal ruthlessly with the Jews. That's why you get that phrase, his heart shall be set against the holy covenant in verse 28. We know that tens of thousands of men, women, and children were slaughtered. We know that the temple was ransacked. Daniel gets a glimpse into this future brutality that God's people are going to experience at the hands of this evil man. Verse 29 goes on to say, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Here in verses 29 through 31, we get an account of a return of Antiochus Epiphanes to Egypt that didn't go so well as it did the first time. In fact, he's humiliated. He experiences defeat. And in his return back home, he decides to take out his aggression again on God's people. Here we get the account of the temple being profaned, the altar to Zeus, in fact, being set up, uh, the putting of an end to the offering of sacrifices for God's people. Now, now again, remember, this is news that Daniel um, has yet to see occur. This is future tense. It, it starts to make sense why Daniel finds himself fasting and mourning in these last few chapters of this book of the Bible. God's people are going to endure a great deal of suffering for years to come. But check this out. In the midst of all of these historical details, look at this picture of faithfulness in the midst of the persecution that we see in the next few verses. Verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We're told that some would turn away from God in the midst of the turmoil. Is it not true that it's oftentimes the difficulties of life that prove our faith to be genuine? that separate the believers from the pretenders. Some would turn away, but others were told would stand firm and take action. Going back to last week, this requires a big view of God, a God that, that cannot be boxed in, a God that's big enough to worship, a God worthy of perseverance in the midst of persecution and turmoil. Daniel is told that many people will stand their ground because they have that kind of view of their God in the days to come goes on to say in verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. 
We're told that there are some who will encourage others in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain, to actually endure, to fight the good fight of faith. Let me ask you, have you ever been there? Struggling to hold on in the midst of a difficult season in life? Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe that's what you brought into this place. We see the beauty of the church in verse 33. People rallying around one another, encouraging one another to keep fighting the good fight of faith. And then it goes on to say in verse 34, When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. Daniel's told that that this hardship and suffering is going to bring about refinement and purification in the lives of God's people. That's part of what suffering does, right? It doesn't just prove our faith to be genuine. It sanctifies us. It grows us in holiness. It strengthens our faith that God can take the greatest hardship, the greatest pain, and use it for our good, for our growth. That's encouraging for those of us currently in the midst of an unraveled moment in life. God will make that hardship the means by which he causes you to look more like Jesus. As we move into verse 36, final section, hang with me. Most scholars agree that a shift takes place. Let's read those verses and then I'll point out that shift. Beginning in verse 36, it says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, verse 40, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Verse 43, And he shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Some scholars believe that this continues to describe this evil man, Antiochus Epiphanes, that we've been talking about. And there are some details in these verses that present some good evidence for that argument. But most scholars believe that in this nearly seamless way, that the focus in these final verses moves towards something future, something beyond the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, The the, the shift uh, moves into this sort of end times focus. That argument is based on a couple of things. One, uh, verses 36 through 45 don't seem to align with the record books books historically in terms of the last days of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. 
But secondly, the language of chapter 12, we'll get there next week, especially I believe it's verse 2, talks about this raising up of people out of the grave to everlasting life or everlasting destruction, that, that we move, we shift into this end times sort of thinking as we move into chapter 12 seamlessly out of chapter 11. And thus most scholars argue that these final verses present a description of a greater villain to come who will bear the marks of Antiochus Epiphanes, one who will bring even more destruction, one who will bring about a wickedness like we've never seen, namely the final Antichrist. In other words, you can think of this morning's passage like a collapsible telescope. And so it extends out to the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, but it extends even further to that uh, than that to one who will embody evil on a level that's incomparable to anything that we've ever seen. One considering himself to be not only exalted above every other human being, but even above the gods, according to these verses, with a ruthless and and unmatchable pride, with a perceived sovereignty that affords him to do as he pleases. And he will bring about a violent end to history. Yet, look at how chapter 11 ends. After reading all of those historical details and the heaviness of all of it, look at what it says. Yet, he shall come to his end with none to help him. It's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? The most violent form of evil to exist in human history will be blown away like a dandelion in a breeze. As T.S. Eliot says in his work, The Hollow Men, this is the way the Antichrist ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Chapter 12, we'll see this next week, will give us a glimpse of the hope for God's people that is to come. But, but what can we say about chapter 11? You know, there, there are uh, commentators that I read this week that said, this is not a chapter that anyone should preach. That's encouraging right, as you're preparing a sermon. I, I wouldn't touch that one. I don't, I don't know if you can do justice to that in a way that people's hearts will be encouraged. They may just walk away and never return to your church gathering ever again. So you probably shouldn't do that. And yet I go, the Apostle Paul said we, we preach the whole counsel of God's word. So I have to disagree with you on that one. So, so what is there to learn? Is there something we can walk away encouraged by? Can you walk away and go, I really loved the sermon on Daniel chapter 11. Is that possible? Let me throw out a few things that I think are helpful for us as we look at a chapter like this. The so what of Daniel chapter 11. Number one. This chapter reminds us just how empty the chase for self-exaltation and power really is. This chapter tells us of this back-and-forth struggle for power and glory that accomplishes absolutely nothing in the end. This is a chasing after the wind. Only God and his kingdom will stand the test of time. Even the greatest form of evil, the final Antichrist himself, again, will be blown away like a dandelion in a breeze. The empty chase of self-exaltation and power is just that. It's an empty chase. So let me ask you, what does that look like in your life? How might God be calling you this morning to repent of seeking to make a name for yourself and rather to turn from that and to be about the building of Christ's kingdom, to be about making much of the name of Christ? A kingdom that will actually stand the test of time. A kingdom that will actually endure. Because again, Jesus is the only one who will not be a footnote in human history. Secondly, this chapter reminds us that we don't get the luxury of standing on the sidelines. Like God's people in Daniel chapter 11, we too are in the midst of a turf war. 
a battle taking place between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Until Jesus returns, there will always be darkness to war against. And, and we're not beyond seduction in the midst of, of the battle, to be sure. Remember, some in this morning's passage, Daniel's told, will turn away from God in the midst of uh, Antiochus Epiphany's threats of destruction. Let me say it this way. The person most vulnerable to the attack of the enemy is the one who perceives himself or herself to be impenetrable. God's people are called to stand firm in the midst of the battle, to persevere, to stand their ground, and not just to stand their ground, but also to fight. Going back to last week, the Christian life is a cage match. It's a call to fight and a call to pray. We have a role to play in putting a dent in the darkness in declaring that Jesus really is enough. Thirdly, this chapter reminds us of the importance of encouraging others in the midst of their struggles. This chapter puts on display the beauty of the value of community. The church is a body. The church is a family. This picture of certain ones of God's people rallying around others within the family of God, encouraging them to keep fighting the good fight of faith, preaching a gospel to them that they may not believe for themselves in the moment. So let me ask you, who might God be calling you to rally around this morning within this church family to encourage to keep fighting in the midst of a season of great pain, great hardship? Fourthly, this chapter reminds us yet again that we serve a God who is in control and knows all things. He is not surprised, people, by the outplaying of human history. He knows the unfolding story of human history, in fact, before it ever comes to be. Hence the intricate historical details found in this chapter of the Bible. The fact that some of us rolled out of bed this morning questioning whether God is really in control, it doesn't change the fact that he is. He is never surprised. God is never sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies. Even in the midst of our darkest hours, he has not lost control of the wheel. He's got you in the palm of his hand. He, he not only knows the outworkings of human history, he knows every hair on your head. He loves you. He cares for you. And then lastly, this chapter reminds us that God has a purpose in our suffering. That God is committed to the purification of his people. Going back to verse 35, God is committed to refining you to purifying you, to making you white as snow. If you find yourself in a difficult season of life as you come into this place this morning, know that it's not meaningless. Know that God is working in you through whatever that is to purify you, to refine you, to cause you to look more like Jesus. That's awesome. Now, here's the deal. Everything that I just mentioned is fine and good, but... The question begs to be answered. What, what in the world does it have to do with the, with the gospel? Because it could be argued that much of what we just talked about is possible apart from the gospel. Could it not? Encouraging your friends and family in the midst of their struggles. Seeing the difficult seasons in life as an opportunity for personal growth. Believing that it's not an option to sit on the sidelines of life. Right, you could write a really good self-help book based on those principles and go stick it on the shelf of your local Barnes & Noble, could you not? So where's the beauty of the gospel in a passage like this? Well, let me attempt to answer that question. Let's come back to the empty chase for self-exaltation and power. It is only the gospel that can free any of us from that empty chase. The most despairing thing that we could possibly believe in this world is that this world is ultimately about us. 
In fact, if you found out that you were the center of the universe, you might like it for a moment, but ultimately it would devastate you. I've said this before and I'll say it again. No one goes to the beach and stares out on that vast stretch of ocean and goes, wow, I am quite remarkable. We don't do that. Why? Because you were, you were made to bask in something bigger than you, not to bask in you. Right? We love to be surrounded by majesty, not because it makes us feel big. Rather, it does the exact opposite. It causes us to feel quite small. We were created to be overwhelmed with the glory and the splendor of another. The gospel declares that there really is another whose glory and splendor is capable of overwhelming us. And his name is Jesus. And he offers us the chance to be free from the misery of living life as if it's one big hall of mirrors meant to reflect our glory. That kind of life can never live up to expectation. It can only leave you grabbing at the wind like every one of those kings that we read about in chapter 11 that are no, no more than a footnote. You won't even know their names if you don't go grab your study Bible this week because I didn't give them to you. The gospel affords us the opportunity to experience true freedom and joy to forget ourselves as we get lost in the glory and splendor of another. What about the standing on the sidelines aspect? What does the gospel have to do with that? Well, think about it this way. If you don't have a choice but to be on the battlefield, isn't it nice to know that you're actually fighting for something that matters? Something that has eternal implications? Something that causes the greatest of epic novels written by man to seem small in comparison? Jesus invites us to suit up. And it's not for a meaningless battle. It's for the fight of light against darkness. It's for the battle of good versus evil. A battle that can only be won if light is actually on your side, which makes it really good news that Jesus declared, I am the light. Right? It's his light that pierces through the darkness of our own hearts, and it's his light that will conquer the darkness on a cosmic level in the end. Everything else by comparison is a keychain flashlight at best. We have the light of Christ on our side the light who entered the darkness and who will do away with it forever in the end. What about the encouraging of others in the midst of their struggles? What does the gospel have to do with that? Can't anybody do that? Well, this is one that will only make sense if you've attempted to to encourage other people with less than gospel truth. Some of you know what I mean by that. Some of you know that only the gospel can truly carry a person in the midst of an identity crisis. Some of you know that only the gospel can sufficiently address our approval issues. Some of you know that only the gospel can sufficiently offer hope in the midst of those unraveled moments in life. Some of you know that only the gospel can simultaneously give hope to the proud and the despairing. Whatever we encourage others with, uh, if it's not the gospel, can only take them so far. It's the gospel that will truly lift a person out of the pit of unbelief and offer them hope. If you're struggling with approval issues this morning, let me be your brother and encourage you and say this. The the gospel declares that you are approved of perfectly in Christ. You are his beloved child with whom he is well pleased. Not because you've done anything to please him, but because Christ has done everything to please him on your behalf. 
Let me be your brother in Christ and encourage you this morning, if you're in the midst of one of those unraveled moments in life where it appears that all control has been lost, and let me declare to you that the gospel says that God cares for you and has made a way to provide you with eternal security, a security that no one can strip from you in the end. If you find yourself despairing this morning because you don't feel like you're living up to God's standard, you're in good company, by the way. Let me be your brother this morning and encourage you and say that the gospel declares that there's one who has lived up to God's standard perfectly in your place. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus has done. And when he said those three words on the cross, it is finished, he meant them. I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine a life lived trying to encourage other people with less than the gospel. It's only going to leave them wanting. What about God's sovereignty and omniscience? The fact that he is in control, he knows all things, he's all powerful. What does that have to do with the gospel? Well, if this chapter tells us nothing else, it tells us that God knows every outworking of human history before it happens. He has a plan and it cannot be thwarted. And that plan is not just on a cosmic level, but it's also on a personal level. That God's plan was not just to wind up the clock of human history and leave us to our own devices. God's plan was not just to leave us uh, in in the midst of uh, our own mess to deal with what we've made of the world as we know it. God's plan included the sending of his son to bring hope in the midst of the, the darkness In the midst of the hopelessness, just as sure as the outworkings of Daniel chapter 11 would come to pass, so would his promise to send a hero to save us from our sins. If he says he'll do it, he will do it. He is a promise-keeping God, and the greatest promise he's ever kept is Jesus. And lastly, what about God's purpose in our suffering? The promise to purify us, to refine us. What does that have to do with the gospel? Well, think about it this way. I've used this analogy before. Christianity is a lot like marriage. On your wedding day, you're declared to be one flesh, but anyone who's experienced marriage knows that functionally, in every way, shape, and form, you don't become one flesh that day. You spend the rest of your life practically, functionally becoming what you've been declared to be on that day. That's the Christian life. It's not that God will one day declare you righteous, refined, pure, because you practically lived a righteous, refined, pure life. If that's what you're banking on, man, I wish you well sleeping at night because you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you've gotten there. The Christian life is a life that acknowledges that our righteousness will never be good enough. We need a righteousness not our own, a purity not our own. None of us can make ourselves pure. None of us can scrub clean the crimson stain of sin in our lives. None of us can make ourselves white as snow. We can never live a life that would cause God to declare us pure. So thanks be to Jesus, who lived the life that we could never live, who died the death that we deserve to die, who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might be declared righteous. And then by his grace, we spend the rest of our lives like an old married couple, becoming what we've already been declared to be in his eyes, pure. Righteous. And more often than not, we grow in purity, we grow in righteousness, not on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. If you're going through a rough season right now, know that it's not for nothing. Know that God is practically shaping you into what you've already been declared to be in Christ 
by the gospel. In a moment, we're going to receive communion, which is an opportunity for us to celebrate the person and work of Jesus, to celebrate the beauty and wonder of a God who would enter into human history, to clean up the mess, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die in order that we might be declared pure, beloved children of God. It's unbelievable. Again, I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's a truth that oftentimes becomes stale to us, and that's a heart problem for us. It's not a problem for the gospel. It's not a problem with respect to the truth itself. And so my prayer over the next few minutes as we prepare to take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood, is that you would fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would find your hope in the beauty of the person and work of Jesus this morning, and that that would then fuel us to go out and to be the church, to be light in the midst of the darkness, to respond differently than the world would respond in the midst of everything that's unfolding before our very eyes as a country, that we would be a people led not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.